For around four decades, the Supreme Court has considered some form of affirmative action to be permissible. What does this mean? It means that the color of your skin can be factored into the university admissions process. This precedent was established through cases such as Grutter versus Bollinger. Proponents of affirmative action range from those who say they want to equal the playing field based on a long history of systemic racial discrimination to those who take a more radical approach, closely tied with critical race theory. I mean, from a philosophical standpoint, the demands of justice are not clear there. Uh, because who, who was harmed, who did the harming, who bears responsibility for that harm are all complicated questions. And they're questions that uh, are worth talking about. But in the last five years, certainly, um, critical race theory has simply declared it's a trump card. And therefore, the only possible answer is that the demands of justice must be fulfilled in this particular way by meeting whatever the demands are of the person espousing the critical race theory. In this podcast, I sat down with Ryan Yonk to discuss the Supreme Court's latest challenge on this matter. An activist group called Students for Fair Admissions are taking on Harvard University, claiming that racial classifications and preferences in college admissions are unfair, unnecessary, and unconstitutional. I want to see affirmative action being repealed and uh, become illegal uh, in college admission system across this country. We cannot have holistic admissions without race because race is embedded into every single facet of everyday life for people that come from diverse backgrounds. Ryan is senior research faculty at AIER. His research explores how policy can be better crafted to achieve greater individual autonomy and prosperity. We discuss the hotly debated affirmative action case, some history of affirmative action and how it came to be, and what happened to judging a person on the content of their character versus the color of their skin. So if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. And at its core, it really brings a, a, a primary issue to the court that asks the question, is under its previous decisions, is Harvard's approach to affirmative action allowable um, given both the larger constitutional issues and the structure that the court had set up in Bollinger yes. and in Bakke? And essentially, the, the plaintiffs are arguing that um, Bollinger should be overturned and that we should return, we should return to the, the arguments in Bakke that suggest uh, fairly strongly that race um, can be no, essentially be no more than a small part of an overall uh, decision making in, in admissions. Uh, and that's in large, in part, that's what Bollinger uh, also was deciding was at what role can race play in the enrollment and admissions decisions of universities. Yeah, so I was looking back in that case a little bit and and it was a really hard decision for the justice to make at that time because yeah. they realized that affirmative action, if you look at the total sum, might actually be harming some people. And so there's a balance to be made there. And I know that it was it took them a lot of time to make the decision. Yeah, so the court took it, it took them time. Uh, it also took uh, multiple decisions. So we did not end up with a single majority opinion across all of the issues presented in Bollinger. Uh, what we ended up with was a plurality decision where enough votes were um, were able to be picked up on specific issues to uh, arrive at a decision that allowed for race to play a partial role in the admissions process, but quotas, which had been um, at issue, were not were disallowed in, in their entirety. 
Okay. Essentially, race could be one component of an otherwise holistic admissions program and uh, sort of firm rules about how many, what percentage were disallowed under the Bollinger decision. Okay. And there were a total of six separate opinions written by the justices, which indicates not a lot of agreement on either the factual interpretation or the theory of law that should be applied. And I think what's most interesting is the proponents clearly believe that the current court is more likely to arrive on a single theory of law, at least enough of the court will, to, to get a majority opinion um, that clarifies what role, what approach should be taken to understanding the role of race in college admissions. So why did they expect to have more of a majority uh, position on this now? So the makeup of the court has changed quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, the uh, you've seen um, some retirements. Um, you've also seen the replacements. Um, have a have, are are more likely. I, th- I I would agree with them. That they're more likely to to articulate a consistent view. We're also now a number of um, decades on from the initial affirmative action decision in Bakke, which yeah. was where this all gets started. In what year? It was in the late seventies, nineteen seventy eight. I'm pretty sure. Um, and that that case um, really set the tone for how affirmative action discussions would go, uh, in part because uh, Bakke. Um, essentially pushed back pretty strongly against race-based admissions decisions and instead articulated uh, an approach for how you could consider race uh, in in admissions, but it could not be the determining factor. And that's really at the core what most of the arguments about affirmative action have become, is what role and to what extent is race allowed to be considered in the decision-making process for university admissions? And so do you think that uh, they have a good case? Like, has Harvard been going outside of its domain if you compare to what those previous well, cases? Well, so, so, they, so the proponents the, are clearly believe so. Uh, and um, the... The trial courts have been somewhat split on the facts of the case, um, but in but where we're at now is that the court uh, in uh, Bollinger left open its interpretation of how the law should be applied. Because they couldn't arrive at a single decision, there was not a particularly clear test that was articulated for how to know. And so you have um, various interpretations of the Bollinger decision that... Um, that have been applied by different schools in order to try to reconcile their own admissions process with that. Um, and I think that that's really at the core. And that's what I expect we're likely to get from the court in this decision is an articulation of what the proper test is. Now, I think the proponents are hoping for a sort of straight up 14th Amendment style race may not be used there. Uh, it's always risky to prognosticate about what the court will do. My guess is the court is not going to end up there exactly, but instead we'll see a refining of the test. Uh, and whether or not Harvard falls within or without that, I don't know. Yeah. But um, I suspect we're going to get a revision to the Bollinger test out of the court. So, so not all the room of possibilities that it's a complete 14th Amendment argument, but I think it's unlikely. Right, right. Um, it, are Harvard using quotas now? In order to so, so quotas are not allowed action? at all. So okay. that part of Bakke never went away. Uh, that exact quotas are are not allowed. The question comes in: How is race 
brought into the admissions process. And uh, to be fair to those that argue for affirmative action, there is some fairly clear evidence that many of the so-called objective measures of admissions potential fail to capture uh, the overall potential of a candidate. So these are things like the SAT, the ACT, if those sort of testing um, are reflective primarily on what things the student has learned already. Mm -hmm. And what admissions are trying to do is figure out how to place bets on how well the student will do in school. And so one of the arguments for affirmative action is that given the state of education in the United States, those from particular, especially socioeconomic, but also racial backgrounds, because the two overlap. And that's one of the problems in affirmative action is you end up using one as the proxy for the other, which is not at all helpful. Um, are less likely to have had the same sort of opportunities, and therefore those objective measures are not as good a predictors about their future success as we might hope they would be. And so they're interested in um, providing those opportunities. That's sort of the most charitable version of what affirmative action is trying to do. Mm -hmm. There are others that would articulate that instead the goal of affirmative action is to get universities to mirror the overall population. Right. And that, I think, is at the root of what um, Harvard's position was, uh, is that they're trying to make universities more representative of the community at large. And this has been the argument that's been going on in higher ed admissions since since the mid-1970s. And can you expand on that a little bit? Like, why is that more extreme? Yeah. So one of the arguments is, so if you listen to a lot of folks that work in higher ed, especially the admission side, there are three distinct visions of what a university should look like. Um, there is one version that a university should mirror the place in which it exists. And so you should be looking for a student body that matches the people that are in the in what they call its catchment area, right. the area that the university is designed to serve. Uh, so, for example, uh, if you're looking at Utah State University in Utah, I use this because I know it pretty well, you're looking at a catchment area that covers Utah and some of the surrounding edges of the states. And so they would the, that version would argue that you should be looking for a student body that is reflective of that catchment area and is serving that area very particular. So that's the first version. The second version is that a university should reflect its applicant pool. So that you should be able you should be able to identify that based on the applicant pool demographically, the student body that enrolls looks a lot like the applicant pool. That mm. it is, it, you assume there's some normal distributions in the type of in people that apply from different demographics, and if you're selecting the best, regardless, you should get a mirror of that applicant pool. In the last about 20 years, um, although there are roots a bit far before, there's become a notion that universities should mirror nationwide demographic trends. And if you listen closely to many of the proponents of, an affirm of affirmative action, this is in large part what they're arguing for, mm -hmm. that a university should look like the United States overall. And as a result, that means that you're, you're pushing for... Um, Universities that may not have widespread diversity in their catchment area, whose applicants pools may not may not be reflective of the larger social sort of makeup, to then try to match who they accept in order to to construct something that resembles. And many of the affirmative action sort of programs are undertaken in an attempt to do that, to get the university to look more like the nation overall. So 
I'm thinking of Martin Luther King Jr., of course, who said, yeah. judge a person by the content of his character, not the color of yeah. his skin. But then you have affirmative action that starts to play out in the late 70s, as you're saying. So what happened there? How did we go from that to then? Well, so in large part, it has to do with how we think about um, the modern discussion of race. Mm -hmm. And I, there's a couple of things I think that are important at, this, at the outset to say, one of which is that university admissions had for decades going into the into the 1970s, and then it persisted after, been one of the bastions of racial discrimination. It's not as though this was a place that was absent the sort of Jim Crow understanding of the 1960s. In fact, many state universities were segregated hmm. up until the end of Jim Crow. And so you had this, you had real barriers that existed, and we should be cognizant of that. Um, and Again, taking the most charitable interpretation, many, I think, of the early affirmative action arguments were that we needed to tear, we needed to tear down those barriers and provide affirmative action to allow people to then get into the pipeline. Hmm. What morphed in the late 1990s in particular, with the rise of critical race theory in the legal profession, was this notion that somehow we, we, affirmative action wasn't about removing barriers and allowing for achievement. And instead, it was about some moral obligation to create a match of what's the social, what the overall society looks like, um, regardless of whether or not there were, were barriers that were there. And mm -hmm. so suddenly now it's an outcome driven approach as opposed to trying to fix the input side. Yes. Early yes. affirmative action was primarily focused on how do we eliminate the barriers? And one way to do that is to say, you can't continue to discriminate. You have, I see. we should be expecting to see some folks coming in that, that don't, that don't look like everybody else. Absent that there may, there may be a problem. So it was more kind of in broad terms, like an equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome, yeah. and it morphed into... And, and then over time, it changed. Now, there were early folks that were arguing much more in the CRT vein that we see today. Um, but again, I think it starts with this sort of discussion, that there is a, a problem, and what is, the, what is the way in which we actually go about addressing it? Hmm. Um, I've heard some talk about affirmative action as though it has no noble roots. I think that's that's a misnomer. I think it's um, a problem if we look at it simply and say there were, there's no there either there was no real issue here or there's no way to address the mm -hmm. issue. I don't think that's quite right. But I also am increasingly convinced that as time has run, we've now started to try to construct what we think the outcome should be. And yeah. that's not a whole lot better. Why? Well, because I mean, it's so. I'm I as a I'm an economist. I'm a big fan of Frederick Hayek. As soon as you start to try to plan the order, that order um, begins to be unwieldy, and we start to see some fairly strange outcomes. Mm -hmm. For example, we see things where the university's mission starts to drift or the expectations start to change in response to this goal of matching something out there, mm -hmm. or sometimes it's referred to as increasing diversity. But fundamentally, what they're looking for is trying to match that that population or, in, or exceed it on the forest extremes. Right. 
And in doing that, we lose a whole bunch of other things. Much like the central planner can't know what the results of their plan will be, the results of the university central planner in admissions face a similar challenge. Yes, yes, that really makes sense to me uh, from a philosophical perspective. Um, one of the things that I saw as well with this case is that uh, they're arguing now that what's happening with, because just to make it clear for our audience, the students for fair admission yeah. who are arguing against Harvard on the affirmative action Correct. front, uh, they are mainly made up of, of Asians. Correct. And they're saying that basically white people and Asians are being disfavored Correct. and black people and Hispanics are being favored. Correct. Um, but what they found there too was that they also have something which is a personal rating score mm -hmm. to get them in. So you yeah. have like, you know, your academic uh, achievements, your extracurriculars, and then you have this kind of right. score as well, your personal score. Yes. And um, the plaintiffs are arguing that the personal score of the Asians has been lower than yeah. everybody else. So, yeah, I mean, so this is where does the question about how does race, how is a race allowed to be brought into the admission process really course? And that's among the central issue. Mm -hmm. And so as the personal score is designed to be two major things, right? incredibly nebulous and subjective based on the person doing the review. Yes. And that's really what Harvard has done in its attempt to make it not a, not just not a capricious approach, but an approach that brings in some of these things that the court has clearly left open the possibility that it might be considered, mm -hmm. but Harvard is using it in this particular mechanism. So they're kind of using it as a way to extend the affirmative action. That, that's, that's what the plaintiffs are absolutely arguing. Right. Harvard's response is that's not, what, not what's going on. Right. The statistics don't seem to bear Harvard's position out. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I think the court's actually going to be addressing is whether or not um, the finding of facts are over in the case. Now we're at questions of law. And so fundamentally, the question is going to be, what is permissible in terms of the decision making? And did the lower courts decide the case correctly? And fundamentally, what Students for Fair Admissions uh, wanted was a, a, a determination that this question of race should be excluded entirely from mm -hmm. the admissions process, that essentially you should have race-neutral admissions. Hmm. Um, so you don't think that it will quite go that way, though? Um, I think it's unlikely we will get there. Um, there's a good chance you're listening to this after the court has uh, ruled. Uh, but let me walk us through a little bit sort of what could lead us down the, the couple of different paths? Yeah, sure. Um, so the path I think that um, that um, the plaintiffs are hoping for is a path that essentially says this is a 14th Amendment question fundamentally and that the courts have erred in allowing for the use of race as a determinant factor in these admissions process. That's pretty clearly what they want. There's probably at least two justices that would, would endorse that perspective. Um, nothing is ever certain, but it certainly from their previous jurisprudence would seem to indicate. Mm -hmm. We have some new justices on the court that it's not clear how they'll rule. And we have one justice that has recused herself um, from the decision in the case. So we're likely to get um, a split decision, but that's one path it could take is that standard 14th amendment. I can't, I can't count to five to get us to that. Um, it's not impossible. Um, because remember your magic is you're trying to get, you got to get to five votes on the Supreme court. Yeah. Uh, even with a justice recusing themselves, um, 
to make any to make any substantive change, you have to get to five. Mm-hmm. Um, if it splits four four, the lower court's ruling holds, and it tends not to be viewed as having precedential value because you don't know how a, a full court would decide. Why did that judge recuse themselves? Uh, they were involved in the process. They had been connected to the case previously. Okay. Um, wasn't mandatory. There is no requirement that Supreme Court justices recuse themselves. It is tradition that cases in which a judge has a distinct connection to one of the pl- the plaintiffs or the earlier process, they will step out and not be okay. involved. Okay. Um, so that's the first sort of um, of I of what I th- what the plaintiffs want essentially. The second would be uh, the other extreme, which is you could you could see a judicial outcome that would argue that race isn't is an appropriate thing to be used, and essentially would return us um, to the allowance of just standard affirmative action. Probably only count. Probably the, there's only three possible votes that would go that way at the moment, uh, and I'm only convinced that two of them would vote that way. Hmm. Um, so I don't think that's a likely outcome, although it's one of the possibilities. And what would it actually mean in application? Uh, it would mean that the test that you would have far more ability to use race in the decision process. So you could potentially use quotas and things I mean, like that as well. That, that is a poss- That is one of the legal possibilities. Uh, highly unlikely. I don't think the court goes there okay. uh, in, in, lar- in part because it's not the issues in front of the court. The court doesn't have to restrain itself to the issues in front of it, mm. but I don't think they'll go there. Okay. What I think is likely uh, emerging, and this is, I would, would, would expect this is where the court comes down. And in fact, what I think the most likely outcome is, and that is a clarification under Bollinger because of the, because of the split decisions, what the boundaries are on the use of race and how race can be brought into the process are decidedly unclear. It was essentially left open. Um, there was there were there was a case in Texas for a while that looked like it might give us some of the answers, and then Texas changed their entire admissions process by essentially hardwiring Texas resident residents into their admissions process. Oh, so it lost a bunch of the president presidential potential because of the change that Texas made. Um, and so the clarification I suspect that is most likely in this scenario is a far stricter test um, about what um, is allowed to be used and under what circumstances race can be used in the process. In function, that would mean it would be far harder for programs like Harvard's to simply use the gray area mm. and, uh, and use race in that way. Um, my suspicion is that it will look something more, the test will look something more like the, it can be one of many potential approaches, just like extracurriculars become part of the overall thing, just like other things. And the court has in the past shown some willingness to acknowledge this as a possibility. And so my, my suspicion is that we're going to get a revision of Bollinger. Um, and that revision will likely provide more clarity, but will be a more conservative is not the word I like to use in these scenarios, but that I think is how it will be built in the media, a more conservative approach to the use of race in college admissions. Uh-huh. On balance, I think that's probably a good thing, um, particularly if um, we remove some of the gray area in the test. So you think that this will restrain what Harvard is already doing? I don't, I don't know if it will restrain Harvard's plan exactly. Uh, the question will be, 
how the court sets up the test. And this is actually, we often think about Supreme Court cases as being primarily about the case itself in front of them. That's in the, in U.S. sort of jurisprudence, that's important to the plaintiffs involved. Mm-hmm. Um, fundamentally, the larger questions of law and how the court approaches the questions that are placed before it in the, in the particular case end up being far more important over the long run. And so whether or not Harvard's particularized program is struck down or held up matters a great deal to the to to Harvard, obviously, and to the, the fair admissions plaintiff. How the court arrives at that decision and what the court articulates as how uh, people should think about the law will end up being, I think, far more important over the law. So that will be kind of setting the precedent. That's what yeah. they're more focused on. Yeah. So the court is making the decision in this case, and they're going to make this the decision in this case based on the law primarily, uh, and then they'll apply the law to the facts, although that was done by the trier, fact below them. And fundamentally, they're going to be setting precedents. They're going to be asking the question, was the law correctly applied? Was the constitutional principles correctly applied? Is there some clarification that we need to give about how to apply these things? And they do that typically through their through their majority opinions and their major- and the minority opinions. The majority opinions have more weight, obviously. So why do you think that Sandra Day O'Connor, that was the name of the judge who ruled on the uh, on the previous case, the Grutter Bollinger case? Yeah, the Bollinger case. Why do you think that she, she kept it open ended? So, so you have to know about you have to if you know a little bit about who O'Connor is. Um, O'Connor wrote the wrote the the decision that ended up being able to get enough votes to actually decide the case. Um, she was a a right centrist on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, she was um, fundamentally interested in the in the questions and was able to put together an opinion that um, could garner enough support to articulate at least some vision of what race could look like in college admissions. Because I think one of the realities in the time period that, Bo- that Bollinger was being decided was that we were not going to see race just eliminated from college admissions. That I don't think was a, a reasonable possibility. Um, I think that there was increasing sort of push for um, college admissions to take into account the totality of circumstance. And that's an important idea. Mm-hmm. And so they were they were sort of grappling with how do you articulate what is and is not allowed. And as we saw, there were six opinions in that case. Uh, and they only were able to come to a conclusion on the issues and l- with limited precedential value in terms of the direction that it gave people. And so O'Connor is sort of that centrist, that right centrist judge that's able to do that. The true centrist in that era was Anthony Kennedy. Um, he was not going to be the one to be able to write that opinion. O'Connor was was far more likely. Why couldn't he do it? Uh, because Anthony Kennedy uh, vote, voted on the Supreme Court a little like uh, he had a bit of a uh, split personality uh, and voted all over the place um, and was not going to be able to create a nuanced enough opinion to to garner support. So affirmative action, if we can just look back a little bit on the history of that 
thing itself. Yeah. Where does it come from, the idea? Well, so the idea comes from uh, recognition of that there were structural impediments typically created by government based on groupings of people by race, by religion, by all those things. And affirmative action is the notion that you may need to take affirmative steps, positive steps, in order to break down those barriers to place people back on an equal playing field. That's the root of it. It's been it's a, a notion that's been around for since the end of the at least the Civil War. It goes back even a little bit before that with other groups, mm. um, and it's a it's a recognition that those structural impediments created by government yeah. are are real, and it's our it's one of the ways in which we grapple with how do we deal with government created inequality, and affirmative action is meant to try to overcome that. Right. Or at now, least it was in its in its roots, perhaps. It's still meant to do that now. It's just meant. It's just now has expanded what those impediments look can be counted as to try to do that. Well, I think of it kind of you know just giving a basic example of women's rights. Yeah. Right. That that was the idea was rights should be equal for women. Yada yes. yada. And then it turns out that now that has kind of morphed into second, third, maybe even fourth wave of feminism now, and so there it's it kind of changed from that idea of being on the same playing field. Yeah. Like, do you think that the same thing is happening here with affirmative yeah. action? No, I, th I, think that's a, I think that's a reasonable description. You can sort of imagine um, things like affirmative action proceeding in sort of four phases. You have the initial phase, which is the elimination of um, de jure requirements that treat people differently. Meaning, by the law, is yeah. there a difference in how people are treated? So that's the first step. The second step is, if we know that this is how they've been treated in the past, how do we either provide reparations mm -hmm. directly to the people that were affected by this different treatment in the form of opportunities, in the form of training, those things. So that's the second approach. Um, these are first order people that were directly affected by the action. Right. Um, and then we move into what I would call the third phase of affirmative action, which is we know that there was this early, this earlier phase where there were legal differences and we know there was a need even in phase two potentially to to make payment for the damage done to that individual. The third phase starts begins to say that that damage is multi-generational and it crosses time and therefore we should have policies that are designed to continue to help folks that had been previously disadvantaged catch up. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the current state of affirmative action law exists is at that third phase. Right. There's a fourth phase that's emerged in the re in sort of the last 20 years or so and emerges in large part from critical theory um, in, in legal circles. Uh, and that is that there is in fact not just we're not talking just about the legal but there are these social structures that were never addressed back here that we now must address and make recompense for and in order to to overcome those things we have to do the laundry list is enormous and yeah. you can track down Phil Magnus who can tell you all about the laundry list under CRT <laughs> but fundamentally it's sort of that four stage approach and what I think is you have some places that are wanting to do affirmative action at the stage four that I talked about, but the legal side is still primarily down here at most at stage three. And much of it is dealing with, okay, what are the boundaries of that stage where we see long run effects from this earlier problems? What do we do about it?
Right, right. Um, can you just briefly explain critical theory or critical race theory? I mean, oh, two heavens. Things, there, but... there is there is no short answer to what critical race theory is. Um, and in 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 function, the term the terms in policy discussions get used interchangeably. Critical race theory is a legal theory, and it's a notion that um, that race is the primary determinant determinant in how individuals interact with their with the social function, including the law. Mm-hmm. And that as the law, as you look at how the law interacts with individuals, race must be a primary concern in it. And from that, we've seen the emergence of a whole host of other things that escaped the law, the sort of walls of the law schools and entered into a much broader conversation. Right. And as a result, those conversations now have placed race right back into the center of what every discussion must be. Yes. Um, it very quickly becomes race all the way down. Right. Um, one of the interesting things is I, I ended up in a very strange discussion at a, a conference I was at some, some time ago where we were talking about uh, mental health in particular. And one of the points that I, I suggested was that race was one of many things that, that matters to how mental health services, how, how your access to mental health services um, gets, is affected. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you can see the racial disparity. And the argument I got into with a very earnest person was um, that they point, they pushed back hard and said that race was the primary determinant. And that's sort of emblematic of how the discussion in critical race theory goes. Um, There are those that push back, I think, wrongfully on the idea that race doesn't matter at all. I think that's a misnomer when we talk about critical race theory. Race does matter. It has uh, lots of connections to other socioeconomic status. We can see some of the long run, but it's the notion that somehow it's the prime and only thing that, that we should be talking about. Yeah. There are lots of other things that are important. So I'm just going to read something that Edward Bloom, who's the lawyer against Harvard, said. He said, you cannot remedy past discrimination with present discrimination. And he basically argues that he said something about being colorblind as well. And, you know, I mean, that's something that I certainly believe in, being colorblind. So, um, but I do understand as well how race matters and to some people right it's it's kind of a very subjective experience but are you arguing that it's also an institutional experience for people yeah i think i think it would be wrong to suggest that it's not an institute not at all an institutional thing i think those that are arguing for for sort of the most extreme versions of critical race theory um overstate Mm -hmm. the case um and Certainly Bloom's argument there is the argument they've put forth. This is the the race-neutral admissions goal. Um, It's the same argument that's been made in virtually every affirmative action case uh, opposing affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds really good, and I would really love that that was the world we lived in, was where we could simply arrive at that. Um, We need to be cognizant that, um, that race still has an effect. And absent us being cognizant of that, it becomes very easy to get sucked into the trap of people pointing out distinct distinct differences in how people of different races get treated and there, thereby get tagged with the idea that uh, racism 
doesn't exist. And that's, I think, oftentimes what folks like Bloom will get accused of making the argument. I don't think that's his argument. His argument is that there's a constitutional principle here that says you have to be, you cannot solve one one past discrimination with future discrimination. But that's fundamentally a legal argument. And there's a broader argument that is, is sort of important in the in the discussion. And I'd love us to be in a place where that was, where we could do that tomorrow. Um, But um, I don't know how we get there from here. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, they're complicated questions. And I think it comes down to as well, the history of America and Mm -hmm. the legacy of racism and slavery and all of those things. It's really hard to kind of, uh, to separate all of that and just say, let's just kind of move forward without focusing on race. But as, As somebody not being born in America, when I look at that, you know, um, I think that there is so much focus on race, whether it's, you know, fighting for kind of level one affirmative action or all the way up to critical race theory. And I mean, I wonder if that does kind of exacerbate the problem. Uh, Certainly, I think that's the case, especially when you move beyond the direct. So it's very difficult to find anybody that would argue against the level one stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and oftentimes it's difficult to find people that would argue against level two. When you can identify someone who has been specifically harmed, most people, the vast majority, would acknowledge there should be recompense mm-hmm. for that. It's when you get to three and four that we start to have real questions about what are the demands of justice here? Mm. And they're not clear. I mean, from a philosophical standpoint, the demands of justice are not clear there. Uh, because who it, who was harmed, who did the harming, who bears responsibility for that harm are all complicated questions. Yeah. And they're questions that uh, are worth talking about. But in the last five years, certainly, um, critical race theory has simply declared it's a trump card. And therefore, the only possible answer is that the demands of justice must be fulfilled in this particular way by meeting whatever the demands are of the person espousing the critical race theory. Right. Um, this has emerged in the work that surrounds the 1619 Project. Um, I'm a big fan of the idea of having people understand what 1619 was. That's not what that project became. That right. project became a political agenda and an agenda that was designed to make a particular argument. Right. Um, by the same token, um, people ought to know about the Tulsa, the Tulsa race massacre. That's the sort of thing that ought to be well taught. But... It should be taught as a historical narrative, in fact, and as a warning about what happens if we allow sort of people's worst angels to overtake them, not as a justification for some large-scale political agenda about what we must be today. So do you think then that things like the 1619 Project, you know, in some of their distortions uh, exist because that history was kind of ignored. There were certain parts of history that were ignored. Like so so I live in this really weird world where I had one of the t- the best possible historical sort of trainings through my high school career. Mm. Um I my I was taught history by Margaret Obrey, who was an exceptional teacher. So people would talk about the fact that they'd never heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And I'm like, how have you never been taught this? I mean, this was something that we we dealt with in, in her history class as part of the larger narrative of the Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm. And so um, I've, I've left a little bit flummoxed at times because 
Um, I was tra- I was taught a pretty sort of wi- eyes wide open version of history by by Margie. Yeah. Um, from that, um, I think we did. We have seen places where there has been a sugar coating of of American history um, in my own classes. So I teach um, what I call American thought and culture class, um, and part of what we do is we we look at some of those things. We look at issues that surround race. We look at issues that surround. Um, progressivism and communism, and we try to look at them eyes wide open to learn from them rather than a specific agenda that says, I can use this to get what I want today. And that, I think, is at the core of many of the problems of things like the 1619 Project. Not the idea that we should know a lot, we should know about what went on in that period, but it's that there's some predetermined outcome that we then use those things to to justify. Right. Um... And do you see any kind of connection there as well between that agenda of the 1619 Project, which is pretty much an anti-capitalist agenda, right? Meaning like we need to kind of make up for, repent for the sins of the past by abolishing our current system. Uh, it's, 1619 is this wonderfully strange merging of critical race of critical race theory and Marxism. I, it's a very interesting combination. From an yes. academic view, it's fascinating to watch. It's terrifying from sort of a, if this is the new version of history that will be taught um, to folks. It's not an eyes wide open version. So you it's don't a, think that um, critical race theory and Marxism are connected at all? Uh, they, they have origins in the same. But you'll notice that um, critical race theory articulates a very particular vision of what the proper structuring is of what could be termed the Marxist view. Marxism structures it absent race. And so right. the two come together in a very interesting approach. So, for example, I, Phil Magnus and I disagree, argue about this quite a lot um, <laughs> because he, he, he obviously argues that they're sort of hat in hand together. Right. That, in fact, critical race theory is just emergent from Marxism. I think they share some common sort of history in terms of its intellectual. And there are lots of crossover links. But I think this combination is a fairly unique combination. Okay. Um, and Phil's going to come for me later on Twitter because yeah. they tell me I'm wrong. It'd be great. <laughs> well, Phil, so- don't be too mean. <laughs> well, some of these things as well, it's, it's people that aren't consistent in their philosophical views or in what they've kind of learned. So they sometimes jumble together different things. Maybe it could be that. But there's also the argument that critical theory is kind of connected with critical race theory. Those are different things. But critical theory is really kind of anti-enlightenment and about, you know, who has the most power and who's the most oppressed and that kind of thing. So so at its core, critical theory is is a fun is a power function game. It's mm-hmm. that's a, that's the root of what critical theory is. Right. Um, what critical race theory does, and I do think it's a mistake to to use them as synonyms for each other. Yes. Because critical race theory takes the premise of critical theory, this power differential question, and then posits that race is the primary power difference, the primary or only power differential, hmm. um, depending on which critical race theorist. The the better ones posited as the major or the most important, not the only. Right. Um, approach to critical theory. And so they emerge from each other and they are all being developed alongside sort of the Marxist socialist tradition in an era where they're responding to the the Enlightenment. Um, So we have a long run of the Enlightenment and then you have pushback that starts um, against some of those notions. So they might kind of overlap then, but they certainly overlap. Yeah. They certainly overlap. 
So if we come back to this specific case here on affirmative action, yeah. you think that it will kind of be a middle ground? So, so I think affirmative action, uh, I think the court's going to leave us sort of at level three of what I've described as affirmative action. I don't think the court's likely to take us back down a level. I also don't think they're going to take us up to this remaking a vision of how the world should look. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the court is, um, the court's conservative wing will, will not take us to level four. The, what I think is that the question that is open is do they pull back on some of what they allowed in terms of that third level right. of, of, um, of affirmative action. And my expectation is that we'll have a clearer test of what do, what is allowable and what what is not allowable. And I think this brings us to an important sort of point is we we oftentimes look to the Supreme Court to resolve social issues. The court never resolves social issues effectively. The court resolves legal issues and then the social issues have to be dealt with around it. And we're in the middle of that, those sorts of discussions now, whether it's Hannah Nicole Jones and the 1619 Project or Ron DeSantis in Florida, mm -hmm. we're watching that play out. And fundamentally, there are risks from both of those approaches because ultimately they're both political. Right. Rather than sort of clear-headed examinations of what of, the world should, be, what the world the law. is, right? As well, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that there would be some people who would agree with you there. Like the law is meant to do specific things, but uh, as long as you allow it to lean into moral decisions, basically, yeah. then you're kind of in trouble because it can swing both ways. Yeah, I think I think I would. The only change I would make to that is not moral, political. Hmm. That ultimately, the law when the law is captured by political things, and fundamentally, that's what Ron DeSantis wants, and that's what Hannah Nicole Jones wants. Is they right. want raw political power for their vision of how they think the world right. should be. When the law is harnessed towards politics, we descend far more quickly to authoritarianism from the right or the left. Right. And right. the law, in its ideal form, is not political but we've never had the ideal form of law. I don't think we've ever had the ideal form of anything. Uh, that's, and we arrive at the sort of sad philosophical question. But fundamentally, the questions that the court has are important ones about affirmative action. And uh, it's telling, I think, that it's gonna be a, that it's a relatively long lead time. I mean, we're recording this in late February. Um, our case was argued in, um, in October. Um, the court is in, engaged in active back and forth, I'm certain, of memos and discussions about what does the final opinion look like. And my guess is, as I said, we're going to come in at that center, that yeah. center area. Okay, great. Well, I think we've pretty much covered all our bases for yeah. this today. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Ryan? No, I don't think so. Okay, great. Thanks, Thanks so much. Kate. Uh,